0: Father, tonight as we have heard your word read, and we ask that we would hear you, that we'd see the world as you see it. As we come along tonight, and as, as, as we hear you, we might for the first time or for the hundredth time recognize how great a King Jesus is. And as we see what He has done and how He is drawing us to Himself and how He is showing us how to respond that we might come out of tonight through the work of your Spirit, changed, having heard you speak. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. What do you make of stories of healing and the supernatural? What do you do when you hear someone say, look, I think something went on today, something big, something large, I, or someone else kind of talk about, I feel like there's some kind of presence over me at the moment. I feel like, you know, there's, there's, there's a spirit of fear or a spirit of possession that's amongst us. What do you do uh, when you get up one day and just everything goes wrong? Uh, today's kind of been one of those days. Uh, church kind of seems to be running well, so we've got someone out the front controlling the projector. Because th- the cables didn't kind of work right. And you're like, are these cables possessed? Like they worked for a minute and they stopped. Do we need to kind of cast out the kind of a demon from these cables? Uh, This morning, Sarah, my wife, got up to the kids' talk, as she walked on stage, the whole kind of um, music stand that she was going to give the talk from just disintegrated, just fell apart as she's kind of walking out. And you're like, whoa, the week we're looking at casting out demons, this whole thing comes, and at that moment, the computer crashes, and we have no video. And it's like, what is going on? Is there a problem with this Mac? Do all the Linux people go, yes, we need to pray over it and get rid of it and get a new computer. Is that what is going on? It seems to me that there are people in the world around us that kind of see events that happen in our lives and and some run to the supernatural straight away. They're kind of people that want to see the supernatural happen and people that are convinced that the supernatural is there. They see demonic activity in all sorts of things, uh, in cables, in computers, in in lives. Uh, They're people that kind of want to see uh, sickness healed right here and right now and we want to see God work in amazing ways. There are others of our community who come along, uh, and they kind of look at these events that people talk about as some sort of supernatural event, and then it's like, this seems to be some sort of naive superstition that people have. There's not anything more going on here, it's just a broken cable, it's just a music stand. Don't be crazy. They kind of reason and science explain away any need for some people for superstition and the supernatural. Now, as far as I take it, I guess that the people that are here tonight are in some along that spectrum. From people who would kind of see the supernatural as something that we need to deal with, to others who might be like, no, nah, this is all just, it's just all naivety. What I want us to do tonight, what Jesus is helping us to see, is how do we make sense of the supernatural? How do we make sense of these things called demons? Are they actually here? And healing, can that actually happen? How do we think through these things? So we get to this next section in the book of Luke. Jesus, well, Luke begins in, in, in verse 14. Now, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. Now, I take it, Jesus wasn't in the car sitting next to a je- demon. And the demon's name was mute, and they were going for a drive. And that's not what's happening. Uh, Jesus is getting rid of this demon from this person. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute, that is, he, he can't speak, he spoke. And the crowds were amazed. Luke claims this man's inability to speak was caused by a demon. For some of us will say that's just naive. Luke and Jesus, they're from a pre-scientific era. They saw that the only explanation for the things they couldn't explain, for these sorts of illnesses like muteness, and some sort of de- demonic activity, it's just their worldview, they're a simple type of people. But Jesus doesn't let us hold that view. The Scriptures don't let us hold that view. Firstly, Luke, who's writing this letter, is a medical doctor. He's not a horoscope writer. He's not someone who's going, oh, you know what's going to happen tomorrow, this thing will happen, the stars are aligned. And you know, He's not just talking about mishmash. He's a guy that helps people get better. He's a physician. He understands sickness and how people get better. Secondly, as we look at Jesus, we start to realise something throughout his accounts in the Gospels. Jesus quite clearly throughout them makes a distinction between people who are sick people who are sad and people who are possessed Jesus doesn't treat everyone who's sad as saying you've got a a demon of sadness let's get it out he doesn't come along to everyone who has illness and say we must cast out this demon of illness he recognises that there are illnesses there that are just part of being sick that people are sad because sometimes life sucks because someone dies and that's not the way it's supposed to be But he also has a category for people being affected by the realm of the supernatural. By demons. As a matter of fact, Jesus causes us to think through our view of the world. Kind of helps us to say, you know what? You're actually naive if you don't recognise the multi-dimensional nature of evil. The multi-dimensional nature of our problems. Do you think... The, the origin of all the problems that we're dealing with in the world today is just natural and human, and that's it. Is it just all we see and hear and feel and touch? If that's the case, then why aren't therapy and science and education dealing with the issues we have? We want to grow people's knowledge and help people to understand things. Why do we still have sickness? Why is cancer still an issue? Why are there still significant amounts of sadness in the world that we live in that's supposed to be the most connected generation ever? And there's something much more wicked and intelligent going on in the world around us. And I think if we think that this world is all there is, I need to hear the words of history, the words of experience at times, that it's naive to think that evil doesn't exist. That, that all that there is is just what we see and hear and feel and touch. So if you don't recognise the multi-dimensional nature, that there is more going on in evil than just the physical, but there is emotional and spiritual as well, then you're being simplistic. You're being naive. And Jesus says you'll be defeated. You'll miss out on what's really going on. In this case, there's no debate about the fact that there was a healing and deliverance from the demonic the people that see what go on at this moment, they're not going, Oh, I don't think that was kind of supernatural. They're like, Yeah, yeah, this, this demon has left. We're seeing what's gone on. There's no debate about whether this guy was healed. He couldn't speak before and now he can. They don't kind of charge him with saying, Oh, this is just you know one of those magic tricks. The guy really just stayed real quiet for a really, really, really long time. And then he suddenly spoke, and you know, you put him, you planted the guy in the crowd, Jesus. None of that. They're like, no, no, this guy was healed. And, and actually something supernatural has gone on. They come up though with two problems, two issues to do with the source of the supernatural. The fact that the supernatural went on is, is sure, but the source of the supernatural is the question. Look at verse 15. Some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven half the people, they think what Jesus is doing is satanic. And that's what Beelzebul means. There's another name for Satan. Uh, by the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. The other half, they kind of view Jesus as some kind of first century magician. They're like, do it again. Do it again and then, then I'll believe you, Jesus. Show us another trick. Give us another miracle. Give us a sign and then we'll follow you. It's kind of like his, the, the, the miracle vending machine. And they're like, Press it again. Show us that you can do it. You know, If you really are who you claim to be, show us some more signs. And what we start to see, though, is that all of this section is actually about how we see Jesus. It's all about how we see Jesus. Jesus, in a moment, um, will, will actually explain the answer to both those problems. Uh, the problem that he is powered by Satan. Right? That's the kind of... You know, people have stickers on their cars. You know, powered by Chevrolet. You know, it's got a Chevy motor. Sorry for the non-car I don't know what the non-car person. You can tell me later what the non-car person application of powered by is. Um, or the other one is that uh, we, we want to a sign. We want to see a sign, and Jesus is going to answer those in a second. But before we get to His answer, we need to flick to the end of this section so that we might understand the beginning. Now, I know for some of you, this is how you normally read books. And I think you're weird. Right? You kind of get to a book, you get in, and then you're like, oh, I want to go to the end, and I want to read the end, and I want to get rid of all the suspense, then I can go back and I can enjoy the whole book. Right? Uh, if that's you, great, good on you. Uh, I think that's weird. There was an author who put it in an order for a reason. If they wanted you to read the end first, they would put it there. Uh, but interestingly, sometimes people, even like Luke here, help you to understand the whole at the end, and suddenly everything makes sense. And so what we're going to do tonight is is, is go to the end, as much as it hurts me. We're going to go to the end and see what he's saying at the end and how that sheds light on what he says at the beginning and hopefully see how the whole section, at some point, seems a bit weird, actually does hold together. What we're going to see is it's all about seeing with light. It's all about seeing with light. Have a look at verse 33 of chapter 11. Now no one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand. So that those who come in may see its light. It's a pretty obvious point. You don't turn the light on and then cover it up. It's dumb. The idea of having a light is so that we can see. So that the room might be illuminated. Then he goes on in verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when it's bad, your body is also full of darkness. Take care then. That the light in you is not darkness. If, therefore, your whole body is full of light, with no part of part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated, as when a lamp shines its light on you. What's he saying? A cryptic kind of moment here? I think he's saying this light is meant to illuminate. If we turn all the lights off and I say, quick, get out, it's gonna not look good. Well we won't know, but it won't feel good, that's for sure. Because we'll kind of trip over people, we'll hit things, it will hurt, we, just, we can't see the world as it is when the lights are out. Light is meant to illuminate. Now our eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, our eye enables us to see the world around us, to see ourselves and the world that we live in, correctly. And when you see things correctly, when your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. With goodness, you actually get to view the world the way the world is. You get to view yourself the way you really are. When your eye, the lens of your body, is bad, then you see things incorrectly. Your whole body is in darkness. You can't see yourself or the world around you correctly. Jesus is talking about the way that we view the world as a way that's right, light, shed knowledge on it, or a way that is wrong, dark, and we just can't see the world or ourselves right. And the way that we live is wrong or right, the whole way that we view the world changes whether we're living in the light, in knowledge, or living in darkness, judgment, no knowledge. I'll give you another illustration of this whole principle. I think it's, we'll kind of experience something like this. Um, just yesterday, Amy, she's our four-year-old, our youngest, uh, was, was playing with Nathaniel. He's our nine-year-old, oldest. Uh, and they were running around, kind of chasing each other around the house, and we told told to stop a number of times. I was in my study, and then I heard this big BANG, and there's a pause. And you know with kids how bad the bang was by the amount of time between the bang and when they start crying. Okay, so if it's a little bang, like it didn't really hurt, you're like, bang, you're like, ah, straight away. And you're like, it didn't hurt, whatever, you cried straight away. But when there's like a bang, and it's like one, two, three, four, you think, oh well, maybe we got through this. And then you hear this almighty scream, like, ah, you're like, okay, this is bad. Right, and it took her that long to kind of work out this really hurt. So I get up and I run in and Nathaniel's kind of standing there against the wall and she's on the ground. She hit her back of the head on the coffee table and Nathaniel's going, sorry, oh, Andy, are you okay? And at that moment, I got so angry at Nathaniel. I'm like, what, what are you doing? Well, we told you not to chase her around the house, right? Sarah and I both sent him to his room. We get to your room. He's like, blah, blah, blah. We're like, shut up and go wasn't the best parenting moment. Pretty angry. <laughs> right, you just can't do this. You're nine. She's four. We told you to stop. Right? So off he goes to his room in tears. And then we kind of, we're there, Chana, Amy, where'd you hit your head here? She kind of calms down. And then I was like, what happened, Amy? She's like, well, um, I was kind of on, on the couch. And um, I just wanted to do a roly-poly on the couch. And I just rolled off the couch. And that's the moment that I'm like, oh, as sure as I was that Nathaniel had caused this. I just realised he had nothing to do with it at this moment. probably the one time only that he didn't actually (laughs) do it. But at this point, it wasn't his fault. And it's kind of like, oh man, he's in his room crying, and we've got the whole situation wrong. It's when you see something, and you get what happened wrong, suddenly you're like, oh, what have I done? You know those moments where you kind of, something changes in the way you view the world, and and you realise that you've got it wrong, and the whole situation that you were so sure of a couple of seconds earlier just becomes... A whole heap different. You ever had that experience? We do it all the time. Uh, we attribute motive to people. You know, they did this because they don't like me. Or the way they responded to me was because, well, they're out to get me. They've got something going on and I can't believe they'd say that. They must obviously hate me. We, we formulate logical and rational accounts of events and actions. and Later on, we work out that they're terribly wrong. We must never attribute motive to people. We don't know what's going on inside their head or why they're doing it or not. We we might see what they did, but we don't know why. We can't say, you did that because you hate me. All we can say is, when you punch me in the face, it hurt. Can you please not do that? We don't know why people did that if we would just stop from, from attributing motive to people when we don't know it. There's something to say here for being quick to listen and slow to speak. The number of times I would have saved a whole heap of hurt and hassle for myself and others if I'd just taken more time to listen to the situation. To stop being so arrogant, to think that my view of the world that I see is right and those around me have got it wrong. If i just spend more time seeing things through the eyes of others. Never judge Modi friends. Let people... uh, Explain what's gone on, hear them out, talk about what they've done and their actions, but don't attribute things you can't see. Here, people have just seen an amazing event. A demon cast out of a man, and immediately him able to speak, no longer mute. That's the facts, that's what's just gone on. But the problem is they've come to the wrong conclusion about Jesus and his identity. Their eyes aren't full of light. Their eyes are crooked and broken, and so they're being filled up with darkness in and of themselves. They're not seeing things correctly. They they charge Jesus for being powered by Satan or say, Come on, do it some more, give us some more miracles, prove that you're God. And so, what Jesus is doing in this whole section is shining his light into their eyes to answer these two challenges. And as he does it, he'll actually correct our eyes as to how we see the supernatural. And how to live a truly spiritual life. I think there's some great things in this for us that will challenge the way we view the things of the supernatural. So the first one, the claim that Jesus is powered by Satan. First thing to note is, there is a battle. There's a battle going on in this world all the time. Satan is real. If you even think that there could be a God, like a large percentage of the population across the earth thinks there probably is some sort of deity out there. If you think there could be a God, then you already acknowledge that there's something out there other than just the natural. You're already in that case. That there is some supernatural realm. What we see here is there is a supernatural realm. There is a battle going on right here and right now. And that Satan who has real power. He's, at this point, with this person, being able to stop this one from speaking. He has some uh, a demon that is in him that has caused him to be mute. But what we see is, Jesus is stronger than Satan. Jesus is stronger than Satan. There's not even a fight. Jesus just commands it out of him. It's what he did in Luke 4. He says, be quiet, come out of him. And, and the demon left that guy in Luke 4. But these people... <laughs> They claim Jesus does it by the power of Satan. That he uses the chief demon to cast out the other demons as some kind of tricky double-cross from a Bond movie. Right? That's what's kind of going on. Now, the response of Jesus in verse 18 is just actually quite logical and clear. He's like, that would be dumb. (laughs) Like, why would Satan boot out someone, like a demon, from within someone? Why would Satan actually be at war with Satan? It just can't happen. Like, it's kind of like imagine they're, they're a, a country. All right? There's a country going on. It's a kingdom. And the kingdom is at war with itself. People are walking around taking this guy out and booting him out and moving them from the country. There's no need to attack that country to overtake it, it's going to kill itself. All right? got, there's a civil war going on with inside it. It will implode all by itself. Jesus says a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If there's fighting and kind of this frustration of Satan is casting out Satan, it's just just stupid. It's not going to go on. He then gives the question a little bit more of a twist. And brings it home to these people to show that really they're they're not interested in, is Satan doing a double cross? They just don't want to attribute um, real power to Jesus. He says, if I drive out demons by the power of Satan, who do your guys drive it out by? In verse 19, you see that there's some reality here that in the Jewish world in this in this point, others were casting out demons. And it seems that these Jewish authorities that he's talking to at the moment, they 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 have no problems with others casting out demons. They've not thrown up a, a concern to say maybe they're doing it by the power of Satan. Now, who are the people casting out demons? Well, it could be just general people, or it could actually be those followers of Jesus that have just gone out the 70 or 72 who'd just gone out and were proclaiming the kingdom and they saw demons cast out. I'm sure some of them were Jews. In fact, they, really are, they were all Jews. They were sons of these Jewish people there. And so maybe, you know, mum and dad, Jew at home, they've seen their sons stood up with this kind of radical group, with these followers of Jesus, but they've seen their son go out and, you know, they're God-fearers. They want to see God's name held high and their son's gone out and he's gone and told people about this kingdom of God and demons have left and they're like, that's my son. You know? This is great that he's been casting out demons. They didn't complain about the sun at that point. Now, yeah, Perhaps it was the sun, perhaps it was others. We're not really sure. But either way, Jesus is saying, there's, there's people out there right now who are casting out demons. Why don't you go to them and say, are you doing it by the power of Satan? And they don't. So Jesus says, well, what's the problem with me? And then the punch comes in verse 20. See... But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Jesus is actually driving out demons. There is someone stronger than Satan. It means that God's king has come. And that perhaps they're not caught up with him. And they want to be like him, with him, in control of him. And they're not any of those things. And so they're dirty. So Jesus comes back and he points them to this theme of the kingdom. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. Have you ever looked at the theme of the kingdom of God? It's a great thing to do as you read through your Bible. As you're opening up the Bible, day by day, seeing what God has to say. Look for that theme, the kingdom of God. You see it everywhere. Everywhere the Bible talks about the king or the ruler. It is, it is, and the kingdom is the people who are under that ruler. Keep looking for the way God uses that and the importance that it is. The Bible keeps talking about two kingdoms the kingdom of this world and the kingdom that is to come through our God. And what we see is that Jesus is that king. That's what he claims about himself, if you see him correctly. And the ruler of this world, the one John tells us, is Satan. Uh, he is the ruler of this world. And if, when, when Jesus turns up, And Satan and his his cronies, the demons, are booted out. What does that tell you? It tells you that the better, more powerful ruler is here. In Jesus, the king has come. Now the next bit gets a little bit trickier. Um, Actually, not quite. In a second it does. Look at verse 22. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in, divides up his plunder, Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. What's Jesus saying? Again, he is the one who is stronger than Satan. Jesus is stronger than Satan by far. A temptation for us is to think that there is no one stronger than Satan. That we can't escape his pull. That when he tempts us, that we must give in. Or when, when, when he, he, he entices us a certain way, we just need to give up and follow him. We could do nothing else. Satan said to me, eat the tree. And so I did, you know. What can I do? The temptation is to go, Satan may be it, The devil may do. But what we see here is that we have another option. Jesus is stronger than Satan. You feel like the world around you is going to custard. It feels like there's almost some strategic plan against your very life to keep putting Jesus first and you just want to give up, remember, Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger. Come to this King from whom demons and Satan flee. But the other thing that we see with Jesus is this. You are either for Him or against Him. You can't sit on the fence with Jesus. You either recognise that He is the King or you're actually part of Satan's group. You're siding with Satan. There's no. Well, I'm not siding with Satan, but I'm not totally for Jesus either. There's no sitting on the fence with Jesus. Either he's the King or he's not. That's a helpful kind of tip. You know what happens if you sit on the fence? Do you know what happens? You get splinters in your butt. So what happens if you sit on the fence for long enough? It hurts. Sitting on the fence is not good. Make a decision. Uh, so often we kind of like, oh, I don't know what to do. We just don't want to commit. We're afraid of committing. Jesus says you've already committed, if you haven't made your mind up. If you're sitting there going, I'm not sure what to take of this Jesus. Then he's saying you're either for me or you're against me. You are no neutral territory. This Life is a war. And every single person in this room is a war zone. And each of us need to decide who we are siding with. Are we going to take Jesus, our king, Are we part of his kingdom? Or are we going to have some other kingdom, whether it be ourselves, or some other god, or some other worldview that we have? There's no neutral territory. Not with Jesus. And so at this point, as we see the strength of this one who has come back and booted out Satan from this man and healed his muteness. The one who is bringing in the kingdom of God, the king has come. The question for us is... Are you with Jesus? Have you seen Him for who He is? Is He your King? If you haven't decided that question, then tonight will be a great night to move forward on that. Maybe you've been thinking about it for a while. Make a decision. Make a decision to go, maybe I'll try it out. Maybe I'll actually see what this is like. Rather than just sitting back and going, oh, I'm not too sure. I haven't read every book on the subject yet. I want to encourage you, actually, try it out. Take a step forward. See if it is livable. See if it actually makes sense. Don't sit on the fence. Or maybe if you're kind of going, oh, I'm not really sure. Actually, go and look at some evidence and be convinced that it's not true. But actually, you want to say, go and look at the evidence that exists. And then Jesus is asking you, are you with me or not? But again, we need to see things in this event as Jesus sees them. We could be tempted to think, you know what? This is exactly what Jesus has come to do. He's come to kick Satan's butt. That's something I'm excited about. That's something I want to get involved in. Delivering people from satanic power, healing people from their illness and their oppression. There's a view that some Christians kind of have is that we need to be people who are seeking more of the Spirit of God. We need more of his power, you know, we need more of his victory over Satan happening in this world and his kingdom and more healing. And if we have more healing and more gifts and more people taking and harnessing the power of the Spirit, and then then his kingdom will come and we'll be like, yes, he's got even more of the victory. It's a question that many of us have. It's a question that is really prevalent amongst Christians across the world. And that's why tonight after the sermon we're going to have question time. If you've got questions on any of this, there's a a number on the screen. love you to text it, and it'll come through to me. And we'll answer those after the talk. But please do ask. There's some tricky stuff here, and we want to think through it carefully. So in verse 24, Jesus helps us to see an even greater issue. Have a look at verse 24 with me. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest. And not finding rest, it then says, I'll go back to my house where I came from. And returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and settle down there. And as a result, that man's last condition is worse than the first. What's going on here? What what do you mean they go to the waterless places? Where's that? I have no idea. (laughs) What what is going on in this village? Well, I've got some idea what's going on. See, simply casting the demon out of this mute man never made him a Christian. Booting this demon out didn't do anything for his relationship with God. In fact, it actually could have made it worse because the demon might have left. Kind of, everything looks great and fine for this guy. Life's kind of back together. I can speak again. But not long after because there's no one in the house. There's, there's no one else possessing this man. This demon comes back with seven of his cronies, and they kind of make a massive mess. They set up a campfire. They're like, let's just burn the place down, and it's it's heaps worse. Why is Jesus saying this? Well, I think verse 13, just before this passage, gives us the context for that. See, just before this, Jesus had been explaining how to pray, how to pray to our God. And We're to pray to him and to see his kingdom coming in. That was the kind of key point. At the very end, he says, if you ask, surely our Heavenly Father will give us what we ask for. And you're like, yes, that's exactly right. And then he says something a little bit odd. He says, verse 13 of chapter 11. You then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We've been talking about bread and scorpions and snakes before, but now we switch to the Holy Spirit. The push here is that we are able and need to ask God for His Spirit. That's what God gives. I think what Jesus is showing us is we're not going to be able to see things Jesus' way unless God's Spirit is dwelling within us. Unless God takes up residence in us, the person's final condition is going to be worse. It's all very well to cast out demons, but what we really need is God the Spirit living in us. Now in the 21st century eye, the Christian eye, would kind of go, yes, that's it. I've been telling you, we need more of the Spirit in this church. We need more of the Spirit in our lives. If we could just get in touch with the power of the Spirit, we'd be more than conquerors. We need more of the Spirit. And if we we move in the Spirit and keep seeing Him in our lives, then we'll be living truly spiritual lives as truly spiritual Christians. But notice, Jesus doesn't say to us for more of the Spirit, but that God would give the Spirit. See, the first century Jew who knows their Old Testament, they know that God has been promising to send His Spirit on on a day when things will be put right. We need to flip back a bit, so if you look at Ezekiel 36, it's on the screen, but Ezekiel 36 verse 24. Listen to this promise and think through, what does it mean when the Spirit comes? Ready? For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. We're hearing the, the bell of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, that you will have your own land and I will make you your people and you'll be blessed and be a blessing to all the earth. He's saying, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. See, the problem for Israel wasn't that the law had some problem with it. Their issue was they couldn't keep the law. They couldn't live as people who had God as their king all their lives. They, they had stone hearts, broken hearts. And what they needed was forgiveness from God. They needed their relationship with God fixed. For they had told him that they didn't want him in their life at times. They had not treated him as the king deserved to be treated. But the promise Ezekiel brings from God is that he will give them a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. The coming of the spirit is the coming of cleansing before God. It's the coming of changing God's people to be people who obey him, who put him first, who are seen as perfect in his sight. coming of the spirit was about forgiveness, not some power-hungry control and dominion over Satan. It was about how to live God's way. The Jews hearing these promises. Knowing the promise of the Spirit is about forgiveness. Be excited at the news of praying for the Spirit of God to come where His kingdom reigns in me. To have this intimate relationship with God when my sin is forgiven, my rebellion is dealt with. I no longer have to worry about judgment from God. Because God's Spirit is in me. God dwells within me. Jesus... Casting out demons. Jesus doing all sorts of healing. Uh, healing a mute man. Healing the blind. Raising from the dead. All those things. And casting out of demons. They're nothing. In the big scheme of things. Every single person who was, had a demon kicked out of them was exorcised. And every single person who was healed still died. All of them. They're still had a problem with their relationship with God. The healing of people never fixed people's relationship with God. The casting out of demons never fixed their relationship with God. In fact, for some of them, it made it worse. Because more demons moved in. What was needed was the Spirit taking up residence in their lives. The Spirit of God being the one who moulded and shaped them, who applied the forgiveness that God had for them. Removing the physical manifestations that came. And by the way, I do think demons can impact, uh, impact us today. I think the spiritual realm is, is real. Uh, you look through the scriptures and you keep seeing what these demons did. They brought a, what, about a mute, physical issue with muteness, a deaf issue. It was a, a demon that, that caused deafness. Um, there was a demon that Threw this guy continually into a fire. It's a bad one, right? It's going to hurt. Uh, There was a man in the graveyard driven into lonely places by a demon and Jesus cast them out. What's interesting to notice is all the problems that these demons caused were physical. They were physical. At no point do we see these demons having an effect on people's relationship with God. What does it tell us? I want to put it to you. Satan can't affect our relationship with God because Jesus is stronger. Yes, he can affect us physically. Yes, he can cause all sorts of harm to our lives, to our health, to our, to our mental state at times. And yes, these things can have an impact on us. But all the problems caused with demons seem to be physical. And while it's a compassionate thing to do for Jesus to heal, it does nothing for their relationship with God. In the New Testament, there is never one instance... Where the demon or the demonic causes someone to sin. Not once. It's not as if there is a lying demon. Whereas I've got the lying demon and I just keep lying. I just need you to cast the lying demon out of me and then I'll be sorted. It doesn't happen. Or or the the, the demon of adultery. And I can't help it. It I had this demon possess me. Satan waved stuff in front of me and it affected me so much that I had nothing to do. I just had to actually go through with it. What does Jesus say when he meets the woman caught in adultery? He speaks to her about who he is, and then he says these words. Ready? Go and sin no more. Take responsibility for your actions, for the moral, for your response, for your relationship with God. There's no demon in you making you do it. It's you. Stop and repent and put Jesus as your king. That's the way to respond here. It's the same issue with greed. What does Jesus say when he meets the rich man who's got this problem of greed? He doesn't say, Let me pray for you and cast out the demon of mammon who's in you. No. What does he say? He says to the greedy man, sell it all and give to the poor. He treats responsible people as responsible people. We are responsible for our actions, for our choices. Satan can't make us do squat. He can influence us. He can kind of push us around and he can cause us physical hurt and pain. Yes. But he can't make us do anything. The profound and important work of the Son and the Spirit is not removing Satan's influence here and now, or healing our sickness and sorrow. The profound and important work of the Son and the Spirit together is removing Satan's power to accuse us before God. For Satan to say, you've fallen, and there's nothing you can do about it. As the Spirit comes, a new heart is given. As Jesus dies on the cross and takes the penalty that we deserve, as he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God's anger and wrath that we deserve is poured out on Jesus. The Spirit and the Son together say to Jesus, sorry, say to Satan, You've lost. You lose. That is the power of the Spirit, is applying that knowledge of what Jesus has done to us, and uniting us to Christ, and helping us to live a life that's living for a different King. That is the far more important work that the Spirit and the Son are doing. Well, let's quickly look at the second way of seeing Jesus' response here. You've seen the powered by Satan option. Let's quickly look at the second one, proven by miracles. Luke 11 verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began by saying, This generation is an evil generation. Man, how'd you this listening to Jesus? He rocks up. You're all evil. This generation, in fact, everyone is an evil generation. It demands a sign, he says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what's going on here? Well, let's talk about kind of Satan now we've gone to Jonah. How does this kind of link? Well, firstly, Jesus is saying a few things quickly. Number one, the generation that demands a sign of who Jesus is, is a wicked generation. What's wicked about them? They want a miracle. They want to be convinced by the the miracle vending machine. Show us more. We want another sign. Give us more of this. And what's crazy, they're asking Jesus, show us a sign. Give us a miracle right right now. Tell us a miracle. They're asking that in the middle of a miracle. Like, he just cast out this demon. He's just healed this guy's muteness. And they're like, give us a sign. It's like, can you see anything? What's wrong with your eyes? That's right. Their eyes are dark. They miss Jesus' view of the world because they think they've got him right. They don't think he is God the Son. They don't want to treat him that way. They want to come with their own view. Sometimes... Christians can base their faith on miracles. They're like, Lord, I want you to do some powerful work in my life. I want you to do some amazing thing and heal this person. And, and you can have a real faith, but it's, it's kind of an up and down faith. You're trusting in Jesus' power to do stuff for you rather than what he's done at the cross. Jesus said it is a wicked generation that demands a sign. We need to ground our trust in Jesus on something, on something far more secure than just the casting out of demons and the healing of sick. When they ask for a sign, Jesus says, you'll only give them the sign of Jonah. What's that? He he takes them back to the Bible. Give us a sign. He doesn't do some amazing pop and snizzle. He kind of just goes, open up the Bible and look. Here is the sign that you get to see. And he goes to the book of Jonah and the book of Kings. Now in Jonah, uh, we meet this prophet called Jonah. And he's like the worst prophet ever. If there was ever a prize for the worst prophet, it would go probably to Jonah. And God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them in 40 days I'm going to wipe them out because of their wickedness and their rebellion against me. So Jonah jumps on a boat, goes the other direction, away from God. He's like, stop that. Is it because he's scared of what they'll do to him? No. Is it because he doesn't know what to say? No. You know why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh? Because he doesn't want God to save them. He knows God's a loving God. And he's like, they don't deserve it. Stop them. And so he goes the other direction, massive storm gets booted off the boat, a whale eats him, a whale takes him back to where he needs to be, and spews him up on the beach. And the original is like, he spews him out. It's God saying, you suck, basically. He's like, what are you on about? It's like, Aah. he's done this great prayer, Lord, I'm so sorry. I think God, in his sarcasm, is saying, get over it, go and do what I said. So Jonah then, kind of dripping a whale saliva, kind of comes out, you know, imagine that, and he goes to these people in, in Nineveh, and he says... 40 days, God's going to kill you, then walks off. And you know what? All of them repent. 120,000. What is that story about? About the amazing power of the prophet? <laughs> no. He's a dropkick prophet. What was it about? That God's word is powerful. What is the sign he's pointing them to? It's to the power of God by his word and what God is doing. The other one, the Queen of the South, is, is about um, the Queen of Sheba. Uh, She's this great queen who hears of Solomon's wisdom and the way God has treated Solomon, who was David's son, and the great joys that have happened within Israel, and she wants to know more of this God. She hears the message of what God has done through these people and comes to Solomon and asks him questions, and she's amazed at his wisdom. And she brings him all these gifts in kind of fulfillment of that Genesis 12 promise, that all the nations will be blessed through you. Here is someone from another nation, Like Nineveh, they're not Jews. Uh, The Queen of Sheba from the south, she's not a Jew. And she's come and she gets blessings uh, from God in this point. What's the point? God's word did its work to bring people into his kingdom. Both of these examples are non-Jews. They're people from outside. But but these non-Jews hear the word of God. And they turn and they repent and they they trust God. God is their king. And they do it, here you go, you ready? They do it without a miracle. There's no miracle there to respond to. They do it even without God the Son coming on the scene. Jesus says on the day of judgment, it will be the Ninevites who stand up and say, shame on you. Shame on you who saw the resurrection of the dead. Who saw Jesus and heard the stories of what he had done. Who had God the Son in your midst and you rejected him. We at Ninevite, we've got judgment. The stinking whale saw a prophet who said eight words. And you got the Son of God and it wasn't enough for you? If only you would see the world as Jesus sees it. If only you would respond to the word. Twice in this section, 31 and 32, Jesus uses these illustrations and applies them to himself. The blessings of Abraham, uh, the great nations coming together, uh, the repentance that is offered through the preaching of Jonah, Jesus says, someone that is greater than these two is here. Someone that is better than Solomon. Someone who is greater than Jonah. Who is that? God the Son. Have you seen Him? Have you seen what He has come to do? To bring in the new age of the Spirit. Today is the day of salvation for us we need to keep asking, will you see and hear the salvation that has come in Jesus? They're almost there, but there's one more thing that I think ties this whole thing together. Right in the middle of these two kind of powered by Satan uh, versus give us a sign kind of moments, there's two verses that we skipped over. They kind of sound like an interruption as you read through. In fact, that's exactly how Luke does it. Uh, and have a look um, And verse 27 and 28, and I want to show you this interruption, actually helps us to get what the whole thing is about. Here you go. Verse 27 and chapter 11. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you are blessed. You're like, what's with that? This is like some crazy streaker at the cricket. Like someone just jumps up. It's like, woo, craziness in the middle of this story. And then Jesus says something and then it just continues with the. The same point from me, you're like, what, what, what is this? I think it's kind of breaking in to help us to think through, imagine the blessing that it would be to have Jesus as your son. If you know anything of an honour and shame culture, imagine the, the joy and honour it would bring your parents if you did well. Or well, you would have if a child of yours did well. If a child of yours was the promised king, the one who casts out demons, and the one who does signs, you're like, that's my boy! Right? You'd be like so proud. You can just see kind of this woman saying, I wish I was Mary. I wish I was like her. She's so blessed. She had this this great, you know, demon kicker out or a miracle worker guy inside her. And in some ways, there's a sense of fulfillment here. At the start of Luke in chapter 1, verse 41, um, you can check it out later, but um, Elizabeth, uh, she has this... Moment where Mary comes in, Elizabeth's pregnant with John the Baptist, Mary walks in, and, and the baby inside Elizabeth leaps, and, and Elizabeth exclaims, interestingly she's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then she exclaims with a loud cry, you are the most blessed of women and your child will also be blessed. This fulfilment here that's happening, you're like, wow, why is... Why is Luke pointing at this moment to the fulfilment of the promises of blessing coming and how does that make sense? Yeah, we want blessing. We want to experience the full blessing of God. Well, look at Jesus' reply and then hopefully the penny drops. He said in verse 28, Even more, those who hear the word of God and keep it are blessed. If you want to remember one part of the Bible from tonight, remember this verse. Those who hear the word of god and keep it are blessed blessing seeing the world rightly experiencing a joy that is even greater than Mary who had god born inside or out of her blessing doesn't come from experiencing the miraculous it doesn't come from healing or deliverance It doesn't come through pop and snizzle and amazing signs that kind of go on and and seeing Satan kicked out of all sorts of places. It doesn't come through any of those areas. Blessing comes through the ordinary, normal, seemingly boring task of hearing verbs and grammar come to us in the Word of God and obeying Him. If you want to experience the fullness of the spiritual life, the fullness of blessing that is on offer, you need to come to the ordinary Word of God. But here's the thing. The Word of God is far from ordinary. It's not normal. It's not just natural. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The greatest miracle ever is that God would come to us and He would speak His Word and that we would hear it because our eyes are darkened. We don't see the world as we should. The miracle is that God would wield His Word in the lives of darkened and broken and vision-impaired people like you and me, cutting through our sin and brokenness and arrogance and darkness and shining the news of Jesus' true identity into our broken bodies, fixing our eyes to see God's world from His perspective. That is a miracle. The miracle that happened with the sign of Jonah was that the Ninevites repented. They turned and they trusted in God at God's Word because His Word is powerful. The spirit-filled life is not one of exorcism and deliverance. It's not chasing after gifts of healing and tongues and words of knowledge and amazing things that pop and dazzle us. The Corinthian church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, they had every gift. They had it all. They had all the fancy things. They could speak in tongues. They could do all sorts of stuff. But he says, I cannot address you as spiritual. Ouch. We seek the spiritual and Paul says that these church, they had all the fancy stuff, they weren't spiritual at all. He says, I can only address you as fleshly, as carnal, as natural. Why? Because there was rivalry and jealousy among you. You weren't living in love. Check it out later in 1 Corinthians 3. The supernatural power of the Spirit in our lives is lives lived with Jesus as King. And that evidences itself with the fruit of the Spirit. With love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faith, self-control, goodness. The fact that we have any of those things in us, or we are able to do them with hearts of stone, is a miracle. In fact, it's only by the work of the Spirit who rips out our hearts of stone and applies what Jesus has done on the cross, and lives in us, and moulds us, and changes us. It's the fact that God is in us, by His Word, makes us even greater than the woman who had God the Son in her womb. Paul says in Galatians 5, have a listen. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The Spirit-filled life is following King Jesus. It's putting Him first. Seeking to generously back the spread of the gospel with your time and resource and money. That's so out of this world. That's so spiritual. To go, I'm going to spend my money, which the world around me says, keep for yourself, store up treasures here. I'm going to spend it on seeing the kingdom of God go out. See, people proclaim the news. People trained up and equipped to speak this news to the world around you. That is a miracle. To be able to love your spouse, even when they've been harsh to you or you've been harsh to them. That is the fruit of the Spirit. Speaking up for the oppressed. Speaking up for the spread of the gospel. Being able to be joyful when life sucks the happiness out of your own life. Because we can be joyful because we've got everything in Jesus. Because God is in us. Because the King has come and we are part of His kingdom. That is the work of the Spirit. And it's amazing. Friends, the challenge of Jesus in this passage is to say, Have you seen me as you should? Have you Heard my word of who I am. I've not come to cast out demons or heal, I've come to give you life, to bring in the Spirit of God who will dwell in you. Have you trusted in Jesus? And ask God to be your king. I'm gonna pray in a second. And if you tonight want to say, Yeah, I want Jesus to be my king, why don't you take this moment to pray and ask him to do that? Let's pray. Father God, tonight as we think through this passage we are very aware that we are not powerful but that Jesus is powerful. We know that we need him to save us and to apply the benefits of what he has done to our lives. So we ask for those of us who have not yet trusted in Jesus that if now is the moment that we might be able to come to you and say thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for offering me forgiveness and for giving me the possibility of a new heart of life forever. For those of us who do trust in Jesus, we ask that we would see the world as Jesus sees it. We would not seek after these things that do not last, but would seek after the spread of your kingdom. And as we do that, we would love others and care for them and show the compassion that Jesus shows and look, look after people. But... Father, we pray that we might live wholeheartedly by the power of your Spirit and your Word together to speak of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that, Lord, by your Spirit, you might change us day by day into the likeness of Jesus. You might grow us in our patience, in our kindness, in our gentleness, in our self-control, in our goodness, in our faith, that we might be people who are marked out as very different, not because of who we are, but because Jesus is our King. Father, capture us by Your Son, and help us to live for Him. Amen. Amen. Well, I promised questions it was a bit longer.